This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Tuesday, January 13th, 2015. I'm Caleb Brown. New legislation now pits big brewers against smaller competitors, but that struggle is really nothing new. The U.S. has a long history of strange alcohol regulation. Michelle Minton is a fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. We discussed alcohol regulation, new and old, earlier today. Well, the Beer Act would reduce the federal excise tax. So for a lot of people don't know that the cost of their beer is made up not just of the grain and the hops and the marketing, but brewers also have to pay taxes for the state, state excise taxes, and federal excise tax. And right now, the federal excise tax is about $18 per barrel. But if you're a small brewer, which they define as less than 2 million barrels a year, uh, you pay about $7 for your first 60,000 barrels, and then uh, it's an 18 after that, so 60,000 up till whatever you produce. Large brewers, they pay $18 a barrel from barrel one till, you know, however many millions they're going to produce. Just to give that some context, uh, most of the brewers in this country, 90% are making less than 50,000 barrels a year. So small brewers make up the bulk of of breweries in this country. Uh, But for example, uh, Boston Beer, which most people know makes Sam Adams, they are a brewery that makes over 2 million barrels. So they don't qualify under the the current definitions as a small brewer, even though we call them a craft brewer. There are competing bits of legislation with clever acronyms, the Brew Act versus the Beer Act. Mm -hmm. Uh, Smaller independent brewers are supporting the Brew Act, and Anheuser-Busch and Miller Coors, of course, are supporting the Beer Act. Right. Well, so, yeah, there's two competing bills. The uh, Small Brew Act has been reintroduced this year. The Beer Act, as far as I know, hasn't been introduced, but it it will be reintroduced from what I've heard. The Smaller Brew Act is really targeted for craft brewers, for small brewers under 6 million barrels. The, The really big thing that this would change is it would change the definition of a small brewer. Right now, like I said, it's 2 million barrels and below. This would change to 6 million and below, which would, you know, lump in Boston Beer Company with that and a bunch of other ones like Sierra Nevada, Stone Brewery, the the ones that are sort of becoming larger and and may get above 2 million barrels. Uh, It would also cut the excise tax rate for these small brewers. It would reduce the $18 per barrel to $16, um, $16 for 60,000 barrels to 2 million. And then below that, for the really small guys, the guys who make up 90% of the breweries, it would cut their excise tax rate to $3.50 from $7, which they're paying now. If they make under you know, 60,000 barrels, the most they would pay is three, $3.5 for every barrel. <laughs> the Beer Act, this one is supported by the larger brewers because it would give them a tax break. The Small Brew Act doesn't give, if you're making over 6 million barrels, you don't get any kind of of tax decrease. The Beer Act, which they're supporting, would cut the the excise tax rate in half for everybody. Uh, And for the very small guys, it would actually eliminate their federal excise tax. So if you're making under, I think it's 15,000 barrels a year, you wouldn't have to pay any federal excise tax at all. The way we've uh, looked at it, the Beer Act would actually um, give an overall larger and just in dollars and cents, a larger tax break than the Small Brew Act would. But as the small craft brewers have noted, the most dollars would be saved by the very largest brewers, you know, in just terms of numbers. We have such a strange system of uh, regulating alcohol in the United States. As briefly as you can, describe this three-tier system that we've been saddled with essentially since the end of Prohibition. Right. So when they finally realized that Prohibition wasn't working and they were going to need to, you know, legalize alcohol again because people were drinking it anyway and it was causing a lot of crime and problems, uh, people got together and started to talk about what they could do, what kind of regulation they could implement that would 
reduce the problems that they believed came from drinking alcohol. And one of the ways – so the 21st Amendment, it didn't necessarily legalize alcohol sales. What it did was it gave the power to the states to decide what they wanted to do, whether they wanted to legalize it and how they wanted to regulate it. And most states adopted – this three-tiered system, which separates the people who make alcohol from the people who sell it. So it, the brewer can't sell directly to a customer. They have to go through this middle guy, the wholesaler. And the wholesaler will sell it to restaurants, pubs, and uh, retail establishments. The idea was that uh, before Prohibition, people were drinking so much. Uh, the nation really was awash in alcohol. And they believed the problem was that, um, in particular, breweries were tied to saloons. They practically owned saloons, and they, uh, teetotalers believed that this was encouraging the people who owned the saloons to push as much alcohol on people as they possibly could. Uh, so the idea of separating out the tiers was to reduce consumption. And that's, you know, we've seen that throughout all of the states. It breaks out differently depending on which state, sometimes which county you're in. Uh, it's pretty much the goal is to reduce consumption by separating the tiers. How much of a bottle of beer, a bottle of wine, a bottle of spirits ends up being uh, just taxes? Well, the Beer Institute estimates that it's about 50 percent of the cost of, you know, your pint of beer is just taxes alone. So, yeah, either of these beer, the small beer or the small brew act or the beer act, either one of them could potentially result in reduced uh, beer cost. More than anything, it would result in money coming back to the breweries so that they could reinvest it in whatever they wanted to. Distributors uh, – at the state level end up being some of the most powerful lobbies in any given state. And and how do they use that to both profit and maintain their power? Yeah, as, as anybody can imagine, when you are the middleman, when the brewers depend on you to get their, their product to market, and when bars and restaurants depend on you to get their products that their customers want, you have a lot of power. You really control purse strings. And the uh, wholesalers in the middle, they have used that power to sort of protect their position in the market. Every time a small brewer bill, pretty much every time, comes up where they say, you know, well, we'd really like to be able to sell beer out of our brewery, not go through you, just sell it directly to the customers. The wholesaling lobby, not necessarily specific wholesalers, but the lobbying arm will come in a lot of times and try and convince lawmakers not to do that, to protect their position in the market, which is extremely powerful. And it's usually a public-spirited uh Pitch. Yeah. Well, because the three-tiered system itself has been pitched as this, you know, it exists to protect the customer from drinking too much, from alcohol being too cheap. They'll just consume as much as they want. So whenever whenever the small brewers or any other uh, alcohol-producing entity tries to relax the laws, the wholesalers will usually come in and say, we are here to protect the public. Uh, that's our role. And so that that's usually they and then their friends in the legislature usually make the same argument that it's not about money and it's not about you know protectionism. It's all about consumer health. The competitive uh, field for beer in particular has changed quite a bit in the last 20 years since uh, Jimmy Carter legalized home brewing in, in the late 1970s. There was, with a few decades lag, this huge explosion in craft uh, beer. So what is the, I guess, what is the public choice calculation that big brewers are trying to uh, maintain? They've, they've, it seems to be they've settled on just buying brewers that uh, were competing with them for shelf space. Yeah, for someone who's been a longtime lover of craft beer, it really has been 
pleasant to watch the explosion of craft beer and the the passion that beer fans have now come to this better tasting, better quality, higher priced beer. The larger brewers, so still for the most part, the um, large brewers make up the vast bulk of sales with beer. They make up 90% of the sales of beer. Craft beer is still struggling to get up to you know, 10% market share. I think they have this 20% by 2020 goal where they want to get to 20% by 2020. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. But the big brewers have definitely noticed the craft beer is taking some of their market share. And like you said, some of them, like Miller Coors, has really been good about buying up small craft beers or buying shares in the craft beer. So not necessarily taking over the brewery, but uh, buying a share in that brewery and then giving them access to their distribution market, which has been extremely helpful for, for example, Goose Island, which was completely purchased by Miller Coors. But now they are all around the country, whereas before they were pretty much just stuck in the Midwest and maybe some eastern towns. Uh, and then you've got the Miller Coors, I mean, the uh, Anheuser-Busch's. They are, you know, th- they're keeping an eye on the craft market. They're sort of trying to make beer that tastes a little bit more crafty more craft beer-like, which, you know, if you like craft beer, instead of saying, uh, they're trying to pretend to be craft, they're trying to make better beer, which is a, we should all think is a good thing, that they're not making, you know, terrible-tasting beer. Uh, but they're also trying to expand into foreign markets, into markets that haven't really been exploited, like Africa and South America. We have a situation at the state level where you have a government-mandated middleman, the distributor, the wholesaler, and very large producers that make up the bulk of those distributors' revenues. And then the the larger companies are able to essentially leverage the fact that they're doing the bulk of the business with these distributors in order to gain access either buying outright or buying shares in smaller companies that allow them uh, to provide this benefit to the smaller producers. And it's just, it seems to be a very a troubling turn of events that uh, something that was designed to uh, at least reduce consumption now actually uh, results in a wider distribution of better tasting beer. Yeah, and there's another thing at play here called franchise laws, which uh, every state has its own franchise laws. And what that means is, uh, for the most part, if you are a brewer and you sign a contract with a wholesaler, in a lot of states, you can't get out of that contract. There's pretty much no way to get out of that unless you go to court and you spend hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars trying to get out of that contract. And those laws were put in place when there were only three breweries. So when you were a wholesaler, you're going to get into business distributing beer, and your entire business rested on one brewery. Uh, the idea was that that brewery could turn around and say, well, I'm not going to give you beer unless, you've re- you know, unless you give me a better rate. And so, the, you know, or I'm going to leave if you don't give me a better rate. So these laws were implemented to sort of protect wholesalers. But since then, since, you know, since the 40s, the dynamic has completely shifted. And now there are far more brewers than there are distributors. And there's a, a small number of very large distributors. So they have a lot of power, especially when it comes to the very small, uh, the small brewers. So like I said, uh, one way a small brewer may have to deal with this if they want to start spreading around the country is to hop on to one of the larger brewers, you know, net, the loyal networks, they call them, where it's, they're not contracted to be just a Miller Coors distributor, but, you know, the bulk of their portfolio is made up by Miller Coors products. Michelle Minton is a fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Read more on our backward system of regulating booze at our website, cato.org.